Hello and welcome to the Maximo Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Lindsay Behrens. On today's episode, I chat with Mona Mansour. Her play, The Way West, is at Labyrinth Theater Company February 25th through April 3rd. We'll post a link to tickets for The Way West on this episode's page at Maximu.com. Enjoy the show. But you live here in New York? Yeah. Okay. Um, are you from New York? No. Okay, where are you from? Um, oh, so we're starting. Uh, I'm from California. Okay. Yeah. What yeah. part of California? Southern. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And you left the gorgeous weather of Southern California? I've been thinking about that a lot <laughs> lately, actually. Uh, yeah, my whole family, they, yeah, they all live in San Diego, actually. Oh, that's the best part a, of Southern California. I know. It's a little quiet. Sure. So, but they, they all live there. I'm the only one who's kind of gone this far afield. Um, yeah, I've been here since like God, two thousand and two ish, something like that. And what was growing up in San Diego like? Um, I think that I know for me, I did feel a little bit like I was in the wrong place at times because just the pace is kind of laid back, which I guess maybe I am in mm-hmm. some level. But um, I mean, I really tried to be like a beach girl and I tried to like have the the requisite tan and and <laughs> you know the sun in in your hair and all those things and I think I failed miserably and and then my my first year of college was actually at UCSD and I would I remember running around with like whatever number of books and someone if just a funny thing people would be like well you seem like you're from the east coast I think I just had a certain kind of maybe it was just a manic energy or something but Energy-wise, it feels like a better fit for mm-hmm. me here. Um, but, I mean, I do kind of, uh, I do love California. Sure. Yeah. No shade against California. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and um, so were you a, a bookish kid growing up? Um, you know, I'd go in phases. I'd go in phases. Um, I mean, I did Girl Scouts, so it's not like I wasn't like you know, but I would say I was, you know, a little on the nerd side. Uh, you know, Girl Scouts did a lot of, th- started discovered theater about age 13, something like that. How did you discover theater? Um, well, I just did, I guess probably even earlier than that, like school plays and things like that. And then I was quite good in them. You know? Acting, presumably. <laughs> I was a very good actor at age nine. <laughs> and so... Um, you know, some teacher at some point was like, said to my mom, you should really put her in, you know, theater classes or something. And, um, and yeah. And so I took classes at this place that still exists. It's called San Diego Junior Theater. Um, they've been around a really long time. Actually, they've spawned people like, I mean, not like, but they've spawned like Casey Nicola and Christian Hot, like people who are like serious, hardcore, Jennifer Allen, you know, like, like big timey people. Wow. Um, so, you know, I got swept up in all that and they would do mostly musicals. So, you know, you'd audition for like Babes in Arms and you wouldn't get it. Or, you know, I, I auditioned for a ton of stuff and didn't get it. Heartbreak. Wow. Because you'd get, yeah, all your friends would start calling you. Did you get the call? Did you get the call? No, I didn't. I didn't. I mean, it was, my mother was like, I hope I'm doing the right thing by putting her in this like little field. Um, so it was actually kind of, they took it, it was taken very seriously, but it was pretty joyous at the same time. What kind of roles did you play? Do you want to guess? 
Uh, no, no, I definitely that's do not. Terrible. I know you're like, what? that is a terrible, that is a no win. Well, I am not a theater academic, so I'm not the right that's person to guess. No, I mean, I played, you know, I think I played a princess once, but then it was always like the old lady with the cane, you know, coming through the door, that kind of thing. So you're an old soul from the beginning. And I, I always, yeah, I did always play those roles. Um, did yeah. you have siblings who also participated in that? No. You're an only child? No, no, no. I mean, oh, I have siblings, okay. but not, neither of them had any remote interest in the theater. I mean, nobody in my family. So, um, yeah. I mean, they would come see my plays, and it was just like, I'm sure it was partly torture for them. But, um, yeah, I got kind of in that, and then really wanted to be an actor for a long time you know and how did you transition to the writing side you know I I guess I I always was somebody who would write a lot of notes although it's interesting because I don't know if you've heard this about Dee Dee O'Connell mm-hmm. Dee Dee writes a lot of notes mm. she has this constant like a little book and you're like what are you writing in there some actors really are like that, some don't. Um, but I was always writing, 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 and I would really get into like character background and like write that stuff down. Uh-huh. Um, and I think there's sort of like a, you know, there's like a, like a scale of like introversion, extroversion. And I think in some ways I feel like I was sort of forcing myself to be more of an extrovert in pursuing that, mm-hmm. that back then. But um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I got a BFA at this fairly kind of competitive program. And I remember the last uh, year of it, they started to do improv. And that's when I just started to really enjoy myself. So I was like, oh. And I respected so much. You know, I, re- I was in the play Candida, you know, by Shaw. And I really respected it. But I was like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the one to like light up this text. I don't think I'm the one to light this up. I, I, I see that there's an enormous amount of beauty in the text. And I'm not able to like... So I think I kind of knew that. Um, so anyway, improv happened and then lived in Chicago for a short while, you know, early 20s. Was college in Chicago? No, Dallas. Okay. Dallas, Texas. Yeah. And um, then, yeah, so Chicago, I really, you know, started studying at Second City and then offshoots of Second City with sort of other teachers and and really fell in love with not as much sketch, but just like the notion of improv and what that could be. Um, and then in LA, um, studied at the Groundlings. And Uh then I would say that's where I felt like, oh, I think I have a handle on what, how to write for, for me, which was on your feet Mm -hmm. kind of a lot. And so I would get together with someone and improvise for like 45 minutes and have the tape recorder on and then write it all down and then edit it down. And, you know, so I don't do that now, but that was sort of my like my way in. And then I realized that was far more pleasurable to me, even than seeing if I could get a a laugh on Sunday night with the material I had just done, you know? In your community of writers, is that an unusual path to have taken to becoming a playwright? I think that in the people I've interviewed and the people I know, there seem to be two paths. Either you're an obsessive writer as a child and you just somehow find your way to playwriting or you're an actor and you transition from being an actor to a playwright and obviously everyone's a hyphenate you know everybody plays all the roles at various times in their lives it appears to me as an outsider of the theater um 
But that does sound unique to have gotten a degree, a BFA in acting, presumably mm-hmm. was the emphasis, and then found your way to improv and Second City in Chicago. And then you went to L.A. in the Groundlings. And then yeah. it was at that point where you really started the writing side of your career. Is that correct? That's that right? definitely true. Yeah. And I mean... I didn't get into the main company at the Groundlings. So the Groundlings is fairly competitive. Uh-huh. And I was in like the Sunday company, which was pretty competitive as well. You know, you do a show every Sunday, um, sink or swim. You know, the thing that you present on a Tuesday might go up that Sunday. And then, you know, um, we all, I'm, I'm close with a fair, well, a few people from that, that time. And, and, you know, something failing is kind of a profound experience. I mean, right. you would have a thing where you'd be there on a Tuesday and you'd be like, God, this scene's going to f- kill on Sunday and then nothing. So you kind of learn like, okay, the lights are going out. I'm leaving the stage, you know, I'm, I'm holding my head up high. It was like good training for that. Um, but and you really uh, started out on the comedy side of writing. Yeah. Oh, so what I was going to say is, so I didn't get into the main company mm-hmm. and that was like, I was devastated, but I'd already started to get like just frustrated with the form it was Mm -hmm. you know I and I also was not again I knew I was not somebody who could like go out there and like I could see people doing it where they could like take the laugh and then make it another laugh Mm -hmm. and I was like yeah I'm not either I didn't have that killer instinct or I didn't have the technique or the desire I don't know but I had started to write and I had started to write uh, a lot about this childhood obsession that I'd had with Patty Hearst mm-hmm. and that whole story. And that was your first play. That was my first play. What was play. it called? It was called Me and the SLA. Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky because one of my friends from college had become at that point kind of a fancy dramaturg, Greg Gunter, and um, in New York actually. And so, although he was in LA at that point, but he was, I knew nothing really about dramaturgy and all this stuff. And, um, you know, so he would just say, well, go and go and do, take a pass doing this, take a pass doing that. Um, and I roughly knew what I wanted to say. Um, so I performed that. That was that was like, it all kind of came together for was that. Was it a one-person show? Yeah, yeah. It was a one-person show, and it, it was sort of, yeah, it was about the way that I thought, you know, at a, at a young age that I was going to be next, that they were going to come get me. And, and so then, the character in that show was you? It was me. At times, I was also some of the SLA members. Mm. Um, there's a moment where I'm being me interviewing Patricia Hurst, and I do a very good Patricia Hurst. <laughs> but um, uh, it was sort of a mostly about identity, I think, and just the, the, the desire to transcend your middle class life, the idea that, like, they'll come get me because I'm just as important as this heiress. And then it's like, well, actually, no, you're not. And actually, you're half Lebanese, so... Lebanese and Symbionese and what are you, where do you fit in this American scheme? And oh, by the way, at that, you know, at at that time, uh, right around the kidnapping and all that, the civil war in Lebanon is going on. So all of these things kind of, it was sort of like me figuring out, oh, right, I'm not an heiress. Okay. Uh (laughs) And also, you know, I think it also explored sort of I remain fascinated by um, groups of people who, you know, suddenly get this mania collectively. I mm-hmm. mean, they were a sort of fascinating group of people. And at the end of the day, they most of them died in this big shootout 
in Watts, mm-hmm. kind of knowing that that's how it was going to go. And I'm still, I mean, you know, so I could, I could talk about that for the next 45 minutes, but you probably don't want, you know. Wow. So what, <laughs> what did you do after that? What did that lead you to? Mm. And so the next thing I wrote was um, a two-person play with um, a writer named Andrea Burloff, who's now a very successful screenwriter. We wrote this play called Girl Scouts of America, and um, and that it was it kind of came about because it's just funny. I laugh I laugh about this now because it feels so casual, whereas now I feel like I'm like to to propose a play or to think about an undertaking is so much more serious. But mm-hmm. we were sitting around a campfire in LA in Santa Monica, this crazy house I had. And um, I said something about, yeah, I know how to make campfires. And she was like, well, so do I. And I was like, well, I was a Girl Scout. And she's like, so was I. So we wrote that. And and then that sort of interestingly ended up being in the New Work Now Festival at the Public Theater. Neither one of us lived here. But I remember bringing it here. And, you know, it's a fairly light play, but, but sweet too. Mm-hmm. And was not what I think people expected. I think people thought we were going to be in um, short skirts and talking about, I don't know, I think people thought it was going to be sort of a sexy fuck you to the Girl Scouts. Can uh, I say that? I don't know if I can say that. Oh, yeah, I can say no. You know, and it wasn't at all. It was actually a love letter to the Girl Scouts. The Girl Scouts are great. Yeah, the Girl Scouts are an amazing organization. So, but it, it was like my first taste of doing stuff here. And that mm-hmm. was when I sort of realized like, wow, it, it is a different vibe here. And, um, and the way that people talk about theater is different. Um, and and is so, that when you started thinking about transitioning yeah, to New York? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then it would be a couple of years, like maybe two years later, I ended up getting a job on a TV show of all things and, and then moving out here. And mm. that was what kind of made it all change. And then that show ended up getting, um, a friend of mine took it to the Lincoln Center Director's Lab. And, and what was amazing about that was saying, I'm not in this anymore. What could this be? And it became four, four women, neither one of us in it. And that's when I was really like, hey, I love this. I don't have to be in it anymore. And so that kind of turned, you know, my thinking about the whole process. And that was sort of like, I guess, the, the, last, the last of my acting bit was, was, was doing that show. Okay. Yeah. And before you got to New York, what was your plan for when you got here? What did you think your life would be like? You had a job already on a TV show. Yeah. Were you planning to write more in, for the theater or how, what did you, what was yeah. your aspiration when you, before yeah. you arrived? I was, I was writing and I knew the theater. I knew I wanted to write for the theater. Um, it ended up being this TV show that um, I, I ended up, I mean, I ended up writing an episode for, um, but then the show kind of tanked. What was it called? It was called Queen Supreme. Mm. Shout out. Yay. Um, <laughs> no, it was the showrunner was a really great guy and gave me a chance to write an episode and I got to do that. So, um, but yeah, all during that time, then, you know, the, of course, then I was here. So I started to see a lot more theater and all that. Um, yeah. And I just started generating stuff. And, and then I guess the next thing that I would say after that would be that, you know, getting into the emerging writers group at the public was sort of you know really big for me because I didn't do grad school um I hadn't really studied a methodology a way of writing I'd studied with really good people mm-hmm. um like Eddie Sanchez and Craig Lucas and stuff like that but it wasn't like I came from one school of here's how you write here's my dogma um 
And so that was like a huge thing for me. And then to be in the room with a bunch of writers and, you know, all of that. What did that program give you? You mean literally or mm-hmm. just... Um, well, just in the sense that I think a lot of people aspire to be playwrights one day. Um, but the path to getting there is very fuzzy. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I was a lawyer. You go to law school. Uh, right. You do summer fellowships, uh, internships. And then after there's an entire program internal at the law school set up to get you a job to be a lawyer after you graduate but the path to becoming a playwright is just so fuzzy yeah and I think it continues to be fuzzy it's fuzzy and then it's more fuzzy I think I mean at least as far as I'm concerned but um it yeah we we had meetings uh every like two a month Mm -hmm. um so you'd show your work um they you know gave you this amazing stipend to go see theater I mean, you had to spend it on theater. So, oh, that's forget, cool. Yeah, I forget what the amount was, but let's just say, even if it was a thousand, maybe it was a thousand. You know, it was like, oh, I'm not going to worry that I'm spending eighty dollars on this thing that I have no idea how it's going to be. Right. So, um, we got to see everything there, um, and just being there, you know. And then, you know, I'm my every year is a bit different or every now it's a two it's a two-year program but the year I did it you know we sort of had um, Mandy Hackett in the room with us and Liz Frankel in the room with us and so you know yeah it was an amazing process and and I'm still close to a lot of those guys um so exposure connections that's yeah, yeah. partially what it is, yeah, but also probably sure. some technical help with your writing and oh, things like no, that. Oh, no, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, you're in the room with other writers, which, you know, was something that I had done in class, but not over a sustained period of time. And so, you know, it, obviously, or maybe not obviously, but, it, you know, there were all different kinds of writers in our group. So, um, no, there wasn't, again, it wasn't like there was one dogma that was sort of running the show. Some of us were more realistic writers others not um how would you just describe yourself as a playwriter in, t- in those terms oh to genre to put myself I in mean, a genre you don't have to yeah. put yourself yeah, in yeah. all the boxes use yeah. as many words as yeah. you want <laughs> yeah I mean it's interesting I guess I'm I, I guess I would say there is a, a realism there mm-hmm. but then there's almost always something that is almost like a a theatrical shard mm-hmm. kind of running across it in some way that I find necessary or wants to be in the work. Um, yeah, the way West is like that. I mean, definitely. I, I sort of had to figure out like, oh, what would I call it? And I'm like, okay, I'll call it tall tale realism, you know? Mm, um, interesting. It, yeah, I'm still figuring that stuff out. Actually, yeah. You know? Yeah. And then yeah. I'm sure it changes over time. Yeah. Um, I've seen two of your works. Uh, one, the piece you had in um, the New Black Fest. Oh, dressing. Facing Our Truth. Yeah. And then I saw The Way West. Um, it was interesting just sitting here listening to you to know that you have a background in comedy because they're, uh, in The Way West there are definitely funny moments, but it's very serious. It's, yeah. it's very, you know... Uh, these people are struggling. Yeah. I mean, I guess we can go ahead and talk about that yeah, piece. Sure. Why don't you describe it? 
Oh, well, um, <laughs> I would say, yeah. I mean, it is a, you know, it's set in um, Stockton, California, a town that has seen better days, um, a, a place that had more life and meaning when the railroads were running. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, you know, it's it's this mother and her two daughters and the mother... I mean, if this is like a little summary, but the mother is, you know, um, sort of lives off her version of pioneer stories. So, and and her version of of the way West stories. And you sort of see how it refracts with her two daughters, like now Mm -hmm. um, in this moment that that we meet them all. So, um, yeah, that's how I would, I mean, yeah. How did you, where did you gain an interest or decide to include pioneer stories in this play? Well, having grown up in California, I realized that in some weird way, I too thought of myself as exceptional, as if I had also made my way, which is absurd. You know, I was born in Seattle. My father's from Lebanon. (laughs) You know, it's just like, we didn't put a lot of effort into getting West, but I had this idea, this just, and I was like, what is that? What is that? Um, Where does that come from? And you do sort of grow up with those stories. Um, That's so interesting. I'm from Utah. So we have a particular version of the pioneer stories. And I have never considered the impact of those stories on the way I view myself. But you are absolutely right that learning about like your people Mm -hmm. having traveled and survived and built something from nothing definitely impacts the way you view yourself did your people do that i mean i have ancestors i mean my father's not from that side but like my mother's mother's maiden name is smith you know there's somehow you can draw a line from like joseph smith to her yeah yeah relatives yeah i mean I've been to Utah a few times and they there's a lot of wagons on display. Oh in yeah. That state. Oh yeah, the this the annual celebration is called Handcart Days and it's a state holiday and it's the July 24th and you it's Pioneer Day and you get the day off school and it's just like July 4th with fireworks and a giant parade. So like a few generations back, they your family was doing that. I guess. It's I mean, I don't right? have like a I couldn't draw a line but like right. It's it, you spend an entire year in elementary school learning the state history, and that's what it starts with. And even though it's a civics lesson, not a religious lesson, you cannot separate the two of them in that state's history. <laughs> right, right. So right. it's really, really deeply ingrained in yeah. you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, it, the 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 thing for me the the sort of added thing was that um my mother who is alive but you know um has has um lives in a nursing home and has not been well for a while um i noticed over the last like 12 years or so that she would start to talk about like pioneers really yeah and it was, it was like, almost as her as her illness um increased so did her sort of focus on that and she still uh, now um her cognitive abilities are sort of in and out, but she will talk about it, you know, well, that what they went through, or she says she wants to get, you know, she's going to get a a cabin somewhere. And so that kind of thing, I think is what started to get me 
thinking about all this and the idea that what does it mean when you are a person who probably would not have made it? What mm-hmm. does that mean that you are, that those are your heroes? So, you know, um, you wouldn't have made it as in survived the journey yeah. across the yeah. plains and exactly. the mountains. Yeah. And, I, and I, you know, um, try not to read stuff like as I'm writing, you mm-hmm. know, to, that's too like on the nose. Uh. So after I was fairly well into a few drafts, I read Joan Didion's book where I, where I was from. And I mean, she is actually one of those people that, you know, could go to a museum and there's the, I think the spoon or the salt shaker that so-and-so great, 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 great so-and-so took across the country. I mean, that is her mm-hmm. story. Um, but she talks about like, what does that mean that those who made it left people behind and this sort of underbelly to the whole story. Um, so that percolated. Um, I also, not as much now, not as much the current version of it, but I had seen the play Quilters. Okay. <laughs> Have you seen the play Quilters? I haven't, but yeah. I've heard about it. Yeah. And I, it really doesn't matter at this point. Early on, that was a bit where the songs wanted to come from because um, I loved quilters. But I also thought about how, for me, there was this moment in that, and it's been many years since I've seen it, but this ter- they would describe this terrible thing and then they'd be like, quilting time, and then they'd sing a song. And I was like, what is that? What, and then how do songs sort of, you know, figure in that? And I would say now I feel like the songs are where they need to be Mm -hmm. the size and the space the the amount of real estate they take up in the play is what they need to be Um, how did the songs develop and is the music set or like if somebody did a different production would there be different accompaniment yes to the latter it is not set um it's been different each time okay um but the songs yeah they were sort of always they're always wanted to be songs there have been more and less depending on the production and there have been instruments or not. Oh, really? And I think this time it was really clear like that there's something that happens when you see them yank out a guitar that sort of takes it out of something and that it, it actually Dee Dee O'Connell, I mean, I'm giving things away, but you know, it was her idea to have the tape recorder, uh-huh. which I thought was so brilliant. That's where it comes from. That's the source. Um, so then it's funny, a couple of the, uh, we sort of, when we did this years ago, we did a bare bones workshop at the Lark and we kind of came in, Lindsay Furman, who was directing it was like, okay, uh, Nadia, come up with a tune for that song. And we would do that. So I think there's even one in there now that is what we came up with. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's because I have Nadia and Didi who had worked on it before, but now Ryan Rummery, you know, who I think has done this amazing soundtrack, like came in and like kind of heard what we were doing and then worked off of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course he did all those other things that were the the soundtracks, if you want to say it that way, you know, to mom's stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to be clear for anyone listening, this is not a musical. No. It is very much a straight play, but there are moments of accompaniment. And I mean, I, I almost hesitate to call them songs so much as sort of really rhythmic, poems with some <laughs> accompaniment <laughs> but it adds so much texture to yeah. the production yeah 
the um, and this is the way West Witch is having its uh, a run at the Labyrinth Theater. And have you worked with them before, or is this the first no, time? No, just you know, readings and things like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and so some of your other work, you mentioned that you are half Lebanese, and uh, some of your other work has been set in that area of the world mm. um I, and are you currently working on stuff i think i thought i read something about the current uh play you're working on yeah i, I mean a couple of i have a couple of things work i'm working on um yeah one is uh, the, set in istanbul and it's a conflict photographer very different play than than the oh, way wow. west um and the other is um a, a, a new commission that I'm just working my way through kind of about me and my nephew who um, wanted to be a, an Apache pilot and, huh. and the fact that I'm his aunt and saying, wait, what, what is that all about? And a series of conversations we had. Um, so, you know, um, that one's very, very new. Mm-hmm. When I saw my nephew at Christmas, I was like, so you know I'm writing this play? He goes, yeah. What are you going to name the character? I was like, well, I don't think I'm going to name him your name. He's like, why not? So he's, he's pretty down with it. But, um, <laughs> but just sort of the sort of, I guess, again, about identity saying, you know, I'm half Lebanese. I'm so aware of that part of my, um, my life. And here he is, you know, he's a, quor- you know, he's a quarter Arab. And does he think of himself that way at all? And especially if you're thinking about the military, what, what does that do? So, um, yeah, that's another piece. And, um, and then on the way back, well, second back burner is a play that I'm co-writing um, with a woman named Tala Manasa. We've written before together. And it's um, about a, a physicist in Iraq in the 70s. Um, so super interesting. I had to do a lot of research. I still do. I mean, physics, you know. I'm very, I'm not a scientist, that and the cultural history and the political history at that time. So, um, yeah, it's funny to sort of think of those things as all being things I'm working on, but mm-hmm. I think that's true for a lot of playwrights. You know, sure. you, you just find yourself in these different like places and that's where you are and that's what you're, you know, you follow what you're interested in. Well, that, that leads to my next question, which is I, I go to a lot of theater, probably like three or five shows a week. And lately I've been walking out of these shows going like, why did you why did you write that play mm-hmm. like why did x person write this play and um a lot of those plays i feel like are things that we've seen a lot of on stage mm. and so i guess i'm curious just in a vacuum you know apart from the specifics of what you're working on why do you write the plays you write like is it because well i won't propose hypotheticals what why do you write the plays you write uh you know in a way it's such an impossible question to answer right Mm -hmm. because you're like why does anyone write anything absolutely but I think I think for me you just circle around something again and again and if you're obsessed with it you just have to keep coming back to it I think each play has its a different why I mean I I know that when I've written stuff um, set in the Middle East or something, that there is an ex- a different why involved there sometimes. Sometimes I'm like, I want people to see flawed Arab characters. I want people to see characters that are flawed and at times selfish and 
there's a central character. Uh, I have a trilogy of plays, and there's a central character, and his name is Adam. And, you know, he's kind of a dick a mm-hmm. lot of the time, right? But I, I love him, and I've been able to work with, like, the same actor on that role. And um, so there's a different why there, and that why is partly attached to I want to bring something to theater that I feel it needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but, they, but they're all different. They're all different. And I think sometimes it's literally just you can't stop being obsessed about something. Um, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's how I think if I were to spend hundreds of hours working on a project, how I would approach each subject matter, each version of the project, the project being one's lifetime of work. Um, and so as a, a, a Lebanese-American woman working in the theater, um, have you encountered uh, difficulties as a result of your identity, or is it not, um, not been an issue? I mean, I think probably not, um, and that's just because of the fact that most most of the time people don't really have a, a real strong connection. I mean, when you say Lebanon, they mostly say, oh my God, it's so dangerous there because they're thinking about the Civil War. Um, but politically, vis-a-vis the U.S., I don't think there's like a tremendous amount of um, heat there, if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if there are ways in which some people would shy away from doing my work. I I don't know about it. Um, I think, but, you know, I think all of us who are sort of Arab American writers or Middle Eastern American or however anybody identifies themselves, um, you know sometimes that what 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 you're putting out there could be problematic for people. That's it, you know? That what you don't even see as political, someone else might see as political. Mm -hmm. Um, that's just part of the deal. Um, Do you find yourself getting anxious about the content of plays that deal with controversy, potentially controversial topics? I mean, I get anxious about everything. So, you know, <laughs> just throw that in the mix. I mean, I think you have so little control over that, really. Um, I wish more theaters would program stuff that was quote unquote challenging. Again, I don't even know what that means. That might sure. mean something different for you or me. Sure. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that it actively informs, but I think that it's, it is part of the whole picture when you're sort of writing, I guess, about a certain part of the world. You know what I mean? Um, it was interesting because this the, 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 the conflict photographer play, some of the things I, I put in that play were sort of, I guess, my own conversation about being an American. But also, there's a, there's a character who's, um, you know, she's Turkish, she's very sexy, she's gay. And I was like, I want to put her in this play. I want people to know that there are gay Turkish women. Sure. And um, I'm not trying to get approval from any religious organization for this play, but I also do feel like she considers herself, that the, pl- the character in that play considers herself Muslim. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, I want to present that conundrum because I, I know people like that. And that's something that I don't think is in the conversation. 
um, Definitely in, theater, not. in theater or outside of theater <laughs> right, often. Right. Um, so that, that, that felt important and feels important to me. Um, but I don't, I, I also don't want to say that there's like a one agenda cause I'm not interested sure. in, you know, that either it, it, it's, it's a combination of a lot of things, I guess. You mentioned feeling anxious about a lot of things. Um, how do you deal with your anxiety as a writer, putting words on page and then having other people read them? I mean, I feel like when I first started, I was so delighted. I was just like, oh my God, someone's reading my words. I love it. And then, <laughs> then you know, it's um, the process of understanding more how, how actors really work and how... Um, you, you might have a rhythm in your head of a certain line, but you have to sort of say, well, wait, let me just, let me just hear what they're, what they're doing here. Um, I, I think I'm fairly, I kind of love actors, you know, and maybe to a fault, actually. I, I think probably there are playwrights who are very much like, I'm going to cordon myself off in the corner of the room and maybe not talk with them much or mm -hmm. not have sort of a kinetic kind of experience of, of being with them. I don't, I don't know what that would be like. Um, but I think that, um, wait, I've lost what our question was. What was our question? How do you deal with the anxiety? Oh, how do you deal with the anxiety? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I, I don't know how anyone does. I was talking to a novelist the other day and she just was like asking me the same thing, you know, like, what do you, cause you've got these other moving parts. There's so many so moving So little parts. is under your control. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's some kind of life lesson about like how little we do control. And I think, um, but then the beauty of it really is, I mean, like this experience in particular, you know, I'm in the room with Didi and Nadia and Mimi and these amazing women and just like, uh, you know, and Anna and just like, like for instance, Portia playing Tress, like has a, such a different take than like say Martha Levy did at Steppenwolf. So it's a luxury in theater to be able to say, you know, I'm going to actually do a little bit, something different with this. Um, I've, I, and I know some playwrights are very, like they will actually say they are controlling and that they, they know exactly the way they want things to look, sound, feel. I, I think I know how I want it to feel emotionally, but then the rest is sort of like, hey, I don't know what the lights should be. Mm -hmm. um, let me see, you know? And so there's a trust. There's obviously, for me anyway, you have to trust the people that you're working with, or I don't know, I guess you, you might lose your mind. I don't know if you don't trust them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the team on the, you have sort of three, we have three female central characters in this play, um, and a female director, um, have, did you set out to create a female centric play for this one or is it just, um, it, that wasn't part of the motivation. I mean, it wasn't part of the initial motivation. And I mean, I, it's funny because I have other things that are very male. Uh -huh. um, so I wouldn't say that that's even, I know that there are women writers who are like, hey, I want to present strong and resilient women characters. And I'm always like, I want to present kind of flawed people of whatever. Right, <laughs> variety. Wherever they are on the gender spectrum. Um, it, it happened with this and, and it, it was, it has been a really kind of amazing process, I have to say, without saying, oh, Mimi behaves that way because she's a woman at all. Uh, Mimi is 
extremely collaborative and very calm and sort of at the end of the day really trusts her gut. And so working in the room with her was um, really rewarding. And I feel like she sort of let the play kind of be the animal that it needed to be. And then she's not afraid at times to say, wait, I don't know. Um, so is that a female thing? I don't know if that's a female thing. I, 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 um, and I've worked kind of equally, I guess, with men and women. So, um, it sort of depends on the project and, um, that doesn't seem like a very politic thing that I just said, but you know, no, I, I think like it's I an be... honest thing. And I think that it would be great if we could get to a place in society wide and in the theater where not so much depended on the gender makeup of various projects. There was just equal opportunities, but we still live no. in a space where there's so few female directors, so few female playwrights getting plays produced at on Broadway or at these major off-Broadway houses. Um, so unfortunately, I think it's something we need to talk about in order to get to a place where we don't have to talk about it anymore. Exactly, yeah. Um, do you have sisters? I'm curious to know. I do. I have a younger sister. Yeah. She has not seen the play. She has not. No. The, the, I mean, the relationship between these two sisters is so interesting. And I thought it really captured. I have three sisters. Um, and our relationship is nothing like the women in this play. Mm -hmm. But I could just, I could see all the history that they had, even though it's never described, it's never talked about. They don't go into it. But it just their all their history is on stage and their interactions are make it seem like they have you know i don't know their ages exactly but like they have several decades of experience with one another and i just was amazed by the way you captured that unique sisterly relationship oh i'm so happy to hear that yeah i mean it uh the, the organism of the family is fascinating to me anyway, and just the ways in which, you know, um, you know, you get off the plane and you have all good intentions of like really being good and like you, you're going to like listen, you're going to get to your family's place and you're like, I'm going to listen, I'm not going to, you know, hassle my mom about exercise or tell my dad he shouldn't eat that, you know, and then the minute you're there, it all changes and, mm -hmm. um, uh, so I'm happy to hear you say that. It, um, she has not seen it, um, and has gotten wind of some of what she perceives to be her role in the thing, you know, but that uh, is not, yeah. Um, but there, there's some of it in there. And I think there's, for me, sometimes a heartbreak involved with family, which is that, God, I, why are we not closer? How did we end up being in the same gene pool and living mm -hmm. under the same roof? Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. shaking my head vigorously. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I adore my <laughs> siblings, but like sometimes I'm like, there's no way we are like yeah. genetically related. Yeah. And Mimi had such a laser beam insight into all that stuff coming from a family. I want to say it's six kids, which oh, wow. she said was like normal in her you know neighborhood growing up in Philly. Um, but yeah, just like that sister does this, this one does this, and then that one comes along and blah 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 blah. But then there's the brothers, you know. So. Um, yeah, my brother has seen the play. He's seen it um, in California. But um, yeah, it's, it, well, the other experience I had, this is now going off that for a second, is when my dad saw Urge for Going, um, did not recognize himself in any of the characters. And he should have. I mean, you know, oh. it was really funny because it was like, Dad, did you, what did you think? Oh, it was, it was great. Did you, did, you, did you see anything you knew? Uh, no. And it was like, you know, so he did not 
see himself in wow. in the characters at all. So I think it's, um, I mean, I know some playwrights go so far afield of what they consider personal. So they're, they're like, oh, I don't write personal plays. I guess to me, they're always all somewhat personal. And, um, but yeah, it is interesting when you have family come to see your work. I would be suspicious of anyone who said that there were like no elements of them in their plays. Right. That would just suggest a like deeper psychosis. <laughs> Or maybe just a healthier, right? Because you just maybe, say, you just say, oh, it's know. not me, so I can just, yeah, yeah. I think they're really just trying to expose the secret side of themselves. That's <laughs> what I'm going to assume. You're on notice if you say that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you think your sister will ever see it, or no? I would love for her to see it. She's, um, you know, doesn't have a lot of money right now, so coming to New York might be a bit, you know, dicey, but. Um, yeah, if it came, if it went to San Diego, yeah, I bet she'd like it. I bet she'd like it, and I bet she would say, "You're not saying that's me, right?" <laughs> and I'd say, "No, no, no, of course she'd not." She'd be the younger sister. Yeah. And do you? There we go. Are We've there traces? Are she there... won't hear this podcast. No, I, I, I mean, I'm not saying yeah. she is the younger sister. Yeah. I'm saying, but like, but you in know the what? dynamic, you're the older sister. She's the younger in sister. In my mind, but I think when my brother saw the play he did not see me as the older sister, and I was like, "Where, where does that leave me?" Hold on a minute. You know, because oh, did he see himself in that role? Is he the middle child? He's the oldest. Oh, okay, yeah. and you're the middle child. Yeah. Okay, yeah. got it. And he's—they both live in San Diego, but really, he—he he is the quote responsible one, and he's done the lion's share of stuff around my mom. Um, I don't know. He's the oldest. He's the brother. You know, I don't live there, but um, yeah, that was a funny moment when I asked him. He goes, "Well, I mean." Yeah, I'm the. That's me. I was like, oh, wait a minute. I didn't even pursue it. I was like, I don't want to know oh, where you think I fall. Where you think I fall? Um, well, and that's not. I mean, nobody in this play is an angel. Right. They all have faults. They're really well-rounded characters. Oh, thanks. Um, you know, I think so often times it's that. That's the hardest thing to do in the theater is to make someone who seems realistic and that they have both positive and negative attributes. Um, and I think the some more, more amateurish, more playwrights tend to paint characters as this is the good guy and this is the right. bad guy. I don't know if you saw Skeleton Crew, Dominique Morso's play, but at the Atlantic, but like that was the thing that I was just blown away by in that play, which was like, there are forces of good and evil here, but no one is, solidly in one camp yeah. or the other everybody is straddling the line and th I thought that about your play oh, as good. well which was like initially I being the oldest I had like a lot of like, I was like yeah she's gonna come in here and fix this situation and show him who's boss just like I would and then of course things started deteriorating on right. that side too and I'm like yeah that's probably what would happen oh, if shit. I tried to get involved too that's hilarious that's hilarious um yeah, and I mean, I also didn't want to write a play about a noble, a mother who lost all her money, you know, donating it. It was like, she made mistakes. Yeah. She made assumptions. The assumption was, things will get better. Yeah. What does that assumption mean? That was, you know, mom screwed up. Mm -hmm. You know, she's not this like... Um, feeble-bodied woman who uh, the forces of evil have been preying on. Are there bigger things at play, which are this mythology that we a lot of us buy into? Yes, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but yeah, I was very clear that I didn't want to make the reason for her bankruptcy to be 
necessarily that a man, you know, yes, she probably took out a HELOC. Not such a great idea. Mm -hmm. Not such a great idea. Mm -hmm. Um, As a New Yorker, it's interesting learning about that stuff because like, when will I buy a house? But we, along the way, we talked to uh, Samantha Cotton is like our ASM and her dad is a a real estate broker or something in, Mm. in Colorado. And he just said, we were like, so, so why do people do those? And he goes, well, it, HELOC, is, it stands for Home Improvements. I don't know, something like that. It's a type of loan. You already have the house. You have the mortgage. And it's like, here's $200,000 to improve your house. Here's, we're going to give you this money. You have the house, so we trust you. Here's 200000 So we were like, great. And do people do that? He goes, most of the time they don't. So they don't improve it. They spend it on other stuff. And then they go, wait a minute, how did this happen? I mean, just... It feels very human to me. It also feels very American to me that the way that we sort of behave around credit and that underneath there really is this idea that like, okay, I'm, I, the debt's racking up. But I, I mean, I definitely um, was in that Manda place mm. a few years ago. I had a lot of debt and I really did have this idea that, you know, some, I'm, I'm going to turn a corner you know, I, I'm too talented to not make up this debt. I mean, literally, that's what's going on in my brain. And it's like, but wait a minute. How, what are you actually going to do about the $450 per month visa bill or whatever? Right, which is just the minimum. So you're not actually making any progress towards <laughs> no. paying down the principal. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because in the past six years, I guess maybe longer, eight years, you know, our country's relationship with debt has really changed. And so to see your play really examine a very, uh, you know, timely but somewhat academic issue, but from a very personal perspective is very interesting. Um, I think a lot of people, if not directly, via their various networks will know people who have suffered similar fates. Um, It's very, very timely. One question, this is very, I don't know, sometimes I like shouldn't, I don't know. If you don't want to ask this answer this question, you could be like, well, we don't need to dive into the details of the play. But like, there's no father figure in this play. Yeah. And I was curious about that. There never was. There never wanted to be. There's no mention of him. There never wanted to be. There's no blame. Nope, there never wanted to be. And you know what's funny is um, uh, I did a workshop at the Playwright Center in Minneapolis years ago and this amazing actress, Sally Winger, played the mom and she's kind of like the you know, a big badass actress in mm-hmm. Minneapolis. And she goes, well, we never hear about Miranda's uh, father in The Tempest. Is it Miranda? Am I getting that right? I don't know. Yeah. But you know, I was like, yeah, I just, he's just not there. He's just not there. We've talked about him. Like what might have happened? Mm. Does he yet live? You know, mm-hmm. um, where might he be? I think maybe he does not yet live uh. in in the scheme of the play. Nope, nope. It just didn't. It just he just never wanted to be in it. We have the grandfather mentioned, but mm-hmm. not. Yeah, it's so interesting because I don't. <laughs> I didn't even think about that until yeah. we were just sitting here. Yeah, it's, it's and there's not an absence as a result of it. Yeah, but when we were sitting here talking and I was talking about my old my own family, all of a sudden I was like, Hey, hey wait, where's the dad? It's so interesting that yeah. he's not there. You don't miss him. I just it's it's really interesting. Yeah, it makes me just like kind of want to relive the whole thing again with that in mind. Sort yeah, of. yeah, yeah. I it, it just never. You know, there was never, I never had the slightest desire even to just kind of deal with him, um, you know, 
in one line, uh-huh. you know, expositionally, yeah. just say, oh, he, yeah. He went away or he, he went died away, you know, or nothing. whatever. It just didn't, yeah. This is this little universe that they've lived in for quite some time. Clearly. These three. Yeah. Um, and all the rules that they have really pertain to the three of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would feel badly if we got through the whole interview and I didn't mention that there are some really cool special effects in this show. <laughs> like, shout out to your design team. Because yeah. Because they are impressive. Yeah. After the show, I saw some people in the audience went and took a closer look hilarious. for themselves. And I was like, I don't think you could just walk up on stage. It's hilarious. But help yourself. You mean the carpeting? <laughs> The carpeting the, that's underneath your feet, the stage that, that you're and, already on. And the other, yeah. the yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. Uh, the, literally, like, it, it has been an amazing experience to do this labyrinth, which now I'm going to sound like I'm being, but it, it they are small, you mm-hmm. know? And um, I, I was able to make suggestions about a couple of design elements, um, things like that. The, they're amazing. Um, Interestingly, so the costume designer is a woman, but then the rest are guys, just as note. But, you know, whatever. When they started coming, we were like, oh, there's there's a bunch of men in the room now. Um, But no, it's amazing. It's amazing what they've done in that space. It's amazing just the experience of people even walking in Uh and the carpeting everywhere. Uh Um, Wall to wall. It's sort of... Yeah, I don't want to give anything away. But but I think we grow attached to, to that house. I know... When I'm not at the play a couple nights in a row, I'm like, I come back, I'm like, oh, there's the house. I feel like I am returning to some neighbor's house or my house. It feels so familiar, you know? That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the design elements of this play are yeah. really fantastic. I love that you mentioned the, the secret special effects, though. That's hilarious. Oh, yeah, we've had people who got concerned. Oh, I have no doubt. I have no <laughs> doubt. Yeah, I want to, after we turn off the mics, I want more information because okay. I'm very curious. Yeah, 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 sure, sure. <laughs> Um, I, I do, I don't want to, uh, end without talking about the piece you have in the Facing Our Truth uh-huh. play. How did you get involved in that? And, and how, do, what was your approach? This, I've talked, I've actually talked about this on the podcast quite a bit. So regular listeners will know that this is, um, Keith Joseph Atkins, the artistic director and co-founder of the new Blackfest, put together six, 10 minutes plays, um, or invited six different playwrights to contribute uh, selections to this project when he was really struggling in the aftermath of the Trayvon Martin murder and the George Zimmerman verdict. And so it's called Facing Our Truth, Six Ten-Minute Plays About Truth, Privilege, and Trayvon. I think it's Trayvon, Trayvon Race, and Privilege. Race and Privilege, I think. I think oh, that's I it. just mangled that no, title. No, My apologies. Um, and, and you had a selection in it. Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious to know about your contribution. Well, I met Keith at the Lark mm-hmm. and um, as one does I liked him instantly because that's Keith you know? super personable I've actually interviewed him on the podcast yeah. so he, amazing yeah. guy um, he he did reach out right then and I immediately reached out to Tala because we had co-written a few things and Tala I just I I felt like I couldn't do it alone mm-hmm. and Tala's an amazing writer and thinker um her life's work is uh she heads a nonprofit that does social emotional learning throughout mm-hmm. new york mm-hmm. so is extremely invested in um kids extremely invested in education all these things um and it was terrifying to to try to write this you know because what could we say about this experience and um 
then we sort of landed on this mother and her son and, and this sort of structure around it. Um, and just, that was one of those that sort of broke our hearts as we wrote it. And I've been so honored, I guess, to see different actresses like do it. Um, and yeah, I felt, I felt very honored to be in that, in, in, in that mix. And you know, now you, he, as you know, he's done subsequent yes, pieces. Yes. Um, and I just actually, I'll just say this because I think it's interesting. I just got um, a text from a friend of mine who's a literary manager in Texas. And she's like, hey, I just saw your piece. And I was like, what? And at first I was like, wait, who's doing it without, you know. And it was some high school from like Mississippi. And I was oh, like, wow. however they found it and however they're doing it, maybe I shouldn't be saying, you know, but that's great. Because that's the point of those pieces is to get out there. And, um, you know, I guess... I feel like that's mostly what I can say about it. Just and then being in the same sort of, you know, slate as like Dominique and Winter and Ray and Dan, who I've never met in person. He's a Twitter friend. Hi, Dan O'Brien. Um, oh, but, he was just in town. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> but you know, he's like a Twitter friend, and we've we've like you know, rubbed elbows sort of electronically. Oh, this this like completely like destroys my fantasy of like all of you guys like hanging, hanging out and I being know. like playwright friends. I know. Everyone's tired. Everyone's tired. It's like, I'm going home. I just had my show. I'm going home. But we've definitely like emailed and exchanged plays sure. and stuff like that. And and it was it was cool to know that at one point, you know, it was at the Taper or the, I think it was a Center Theater Group, mm. you know, and they did a whole project with that, which was like bringing school kids in. And the thing that Keith did that was so, I mean, there's a few things that he did that were amazing about it. One of which was him saying, I'm not waiting. I'm not waiting for any institution yeah. to give us a yes. He also said... I think you probably know this, but like if you present these works, there must be an educational slash community component. Mm -hmm. Hope I'm getting this right. There must be. So they have to be presented that way. And that's been just when I keep tabs on it, I'm always really happy to hear about where it's happening. Um, and of course, then these other pieces that have now gone out into the world, hands up. And I can't remember the last the next one. one. The next one is Untamed. Yes. And it's actually doing a run at the National Black Theater at the end of the month. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm very excited to see that one. And you know, for the first one in particular, Keith was like, I really wanted a diverse mm -hmm. group of people to weigh in on this. Um, I think each piece has been different. But um, yep. yeah, I feel very honored to have been a part of that. And um, um, and then, you know, you, I love when I write something that I know I could never perform, but I know that someone can, and I've seen it done. But I'm like, oh, I could never do this piece. Well, the... Pieces each have a totally different tone, different style. I mean, it's six very diverse pieces, but your piece is definitely the gut wrencher. It, I mean, it goes so deep. I'll pass that along to tell. Yeah, no, when we, when we were doing that last go around of rewrites, you know, and we're sort of emailing it to each other, it was like, oof, I feel, I mean, you should feel that way. If you're yeah. writing that piece, yeah. you should feel kind of sick, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, this 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 mother who's there, and then at the end of the day, it's like she's got his shirts. And um, no, I'm really pr I'm I'm really proud of that piece. I'm proud to have been involved in that. Um, and I think, you know, it it inspired me as an artist to say, when we wait, what happens sometimes? I mean, I would like to think that if I felt something like Keith did, that I would say, okay, I'm not waiting either. I'm going to do this and then we'll, we'll follow through. Cause as you know, 
it moves so slow. It moves so slow. Theater is typically just like almost a generation behind in responding to social matters. But I think the model Keith has developed is just so brilliant of merging timeliness, activism, politics, and theater and performance. And it's fast. Yeah. It's like, it's like the model of restaurants or, or retail that's like pop up, you know, I'm quite fond of that model myself, you know, Mm -hmm. and yeah, maybe, maybe in a year from now we'll be talking and I'll say, oh, I've got this thing that I'm generating like that. But no, I think he felt the call or however he would say and, and, um, and didn't wait, you know, and then he's just, you, you want to say yes to Keith, you know? So that's what happened. Mm -hmm. Then of course, like I said, it was terrifying to write it because it was just like, what, what can we bring to this? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Great to meet you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Max Moo Theater and Performance Podcast. Next week, we'll preview the spring season on Broadway. In the meantime, you can find us all on Twitter. Mona is at Mona Mansour NY. That's M-O-N-A-M-A-N-S-O-U-R-N-Y. I am at Lindsay Behrens, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-B-A-R-E-N-Z. And Max Moo is at Max Moo, M-A-X-A-M-O-O. See you next week.